Hello, gathered few. Welcome to <laughs> welcome to the to 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 probably the uh, the the most spooky uh, non-Halloween themed episode of the water cooler. This is a, a, an extraordinarily disconcerting sensation to be up here because I can see all of your faces in just like just just oh, crystal clear detail, and you could probably can't see me or the speakers as well. But we're just going to power through it, um, um, just for you guys. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the newest issue of the Water Cooler. I am your, uh, I am your, your, your MC for tonight, your, your chatty host, your wordy shipmate on the oceans of anecdote. I'm back after two months of being away. I'm Oliver Quincy Page. Thank you for having me. And... <laughs> And uh, and thank you for uh, thank you for for uh, uh, for taking um, our OHP gimp uh, Phineas Tepet and our uh, and our intrepid producer Sarah Finnegan Walsh in my stead. Uh, look, <laughs> just, I'm not allowed to call him the OHP gimp anymore, but uh, but I like to because 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 that's really that's his job, isn't it? Really, hit me! Come on, baby, hit me! Wow, oh, yeah. It's mayonnaise and tomato sauce sachets. Um, so uh, uh, if, you, if you have never been to the Water Cooler before, this is, uh, the Water Cooler is New Zealand's preeminent storytelling event where we choose just only the most attractive young men and women from the slums of New Zealand's middle class to, to get up and to, and, to, and to expound upon a theme. Each month we choose a theme. The theme today is all in the family. It's all in the family. So, to begin, uh, I want a show of hands. Um, everyone who is over 40 in the room. There's not many of you. So there's one there. Mum, put up your hand. You are most assuredly are over 40. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. Okay, so there you go. Hello. Hey, some, thank you very much. Um, so anybody who's over 40 may be aware of a television show that ran from 1971 to 1978 on the central broadcasting system, that's CBS, on American television, and that was called All in the Family, the namesake. And, uh, and I think it's really apropos uh, that, we, that we, we chose that name for, for, this, uh, for this show because uh, All in the Family really ushered in the golden age of... American family sitcoms in the late 60s and the early 70s going into the 80s, the Cosby Show, Family Ties, Different Strokes, all that kind of stuff. And their one major contribution to the genre, aside from beginning it, was something called the Very Special Episode. Now, uh, so you, you may be aware of Very Special Episodes. We have uh, Very Special Episodes uh, on uh, Shortland Street a lot, I think. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, where, where, where really profound things happen. And uh, All in the Family, when it was on in the 70s, it was about a guy called Archie Bunker and about his family. And he was, for want of a better word, a bigot. He was this, he was this white guy who had a wife and a couple of kids, and he was a World War II veteran, and he uh, didn't like anybody who wasn't uh, progressive. He didn't like anybody who wasn't, uh, wasn't conservative. And uh, he was a, uh, just a really horrible person. But he was also a really fun to be around because we, they, the writers were using the show to discuss some of the most important socio-political issues of the day through these very special episodes. And, and, and I think that that's, uh, I think it's, 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 it's extraordinary. If you think about at the time in the 1970s, you had, uh, you had a television, network television, discussing the time that Edith Bunker was uh, sexually assaulted on the streets of Manhattan. Uh, you had the time where some, one, of the, one, of the, uh, one of the daughters uh, had an abortion. You, uh, in the 70s, that was a, that was a big deal. Um, you had some lighter stuff, like uh, uh, Rob Rayner, the filmmaker, once played uh, a character he was uh, in the show as the kind of a hippie uh, boyfriend who butted heads with Archie. And I grew up on the show, and I, and I loved it. And I, I love it because it, it, it really expressed to me some of the, the foundational aspects of, of what it is that we get from our families. Um, we, we are challenged by our families. We're shown the light by, by our families. Uh, for better or worse, we, we, ha we have horrible experiences with them. We have wonderful experiences with them. And the show uh, really expressed that in a, beautiful, in a beautiful way, in a way that I think that, that our four speakers will express tonight. Um, so I guess without further ado, I will uh, invite our first speaker up. He is sitting over here. 
and he <laughs> uh, yes he is and his name is Chris Thompson ladies and gentlemen Chris Thompson Just working with the set here. I feel like I'm climbing the summit. <laughs> so what did you do today, Chris? I um, what did I do? I went I went to high school actually today. You went to high school today, and yeah. and why did you go to high school today? I just didn't do very well in high school, so I thought I'd give it another <laughs> shot. Now, uh, uh, no, I'm going to be a, I'm trying to become a high school teacher, so I was going and observing high school. Right, and and what what's that like? Observing high school. It's pretty interesting. As somebody who's been through high school yourself. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was nice to see high school again without all that teen angst that I had when I was there. Yeah. So I could appreciate math again. <laughs> <laughs> and and, you're, uh, and, and uh, you didn't, this is not your, this, this wasn't your initial path. You, you actually have a PhD. <laughs> you, uh, you actually have a PhD. You do. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, that just, that just sounded right. peculiar. Um, Oh, no, I've, I've completed a PhD, so I submitted my PhD in psychology this year. So One technically I haven't completed it because it hasn't been marked, but let's just assume I didn't fail. Cool. Yeah, yeah round of applause for a PhD in psychology. <laughs> and uh, why go from psychology into, into teaching uh, high school? What, what was the impetus behind that? Because hmm. there's a lot of money in psychology in that racket. <laughs> what? <laughs> isn't there being a psychologist? No. Oh, no. there isn't? Have you, have you ever done an undergraduate degree in psychology? I have not. Oh, well, you should try it. But I've, um. been, but I've had to pay, <laughs> but I've paid hundreds and hundreds of dollars to have um, people, people who have the yeah. same PhD as you uh, tell me things about myself. <laughs> <laughs> How, how'd that go? Did it work out anyway, for you? Yeah, it went, it, it went reasonably well for the first couple of sessions. Yeah, and yeah. then what happened after that? Is this something we should be getting into? Oh, I, don't, I, think I don't know. So. Maybe. I think. I so. think. I think. Good. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Chris <laughs> Thompson. <laughs> oh, that just started to get really interesting. We were, gonna, yeah. you know, starting to uncover some stuff. Um, this is an interesting mic. I feel like Elvis. Um, anyway. Sunday nights were always the same in my household every Sunday. A little bit of a game of cat and mouse between me and my mum. I would try and pretend to be asleep while my mum would do her best to make sure I was awake uh, and dressed and ready to go. Christopher! She would yell at me. Three syllables to let, you, to let me know that she was serious. Get up, get ready! I remember one Sunday, it had got to about 9.30, and I was like, oh, I think I finally got past it. I think she thinks I am asleep for once. Um, but then she stormed into my room and ripped off all my blankets and hit me on the bottom and said, get out of bed, we're very late. Um, so naturally I'm like, no, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. So I jumped out of bed and I ran around the house like a maniac um, with my mum chasing after me. And then when my mum gets really angry, I don't know about you guys, but when my mum gets really angry, she gets out the wooden spoon and that's when you know that she's not playing around. And so many a wooden spoon have been broken on my behind and this one was about to share quite a similar fate, unfortunately. Um, so just as my mum was motioning towards me, we just, we start to hear someone crying, and it wasn't me, um, yet. Um, so my mum turned around, and it's my sister. My sister's bawling her eyes out, and confused and irritated, my mum's like, what are you crying about? And she's like, I, I actually put the clock forward an hour. We're not late at all. And so my mum just looked at her, looked at the spoon, and just cracked up laughing. We then quickly put on all my clothes and rushed off to church with plenty of time to spare. Now, this struggle happened every Sunday, and I think that was because I just really, really didn't want to go to church. I was, it was very boring. Um, I missed what now, <laughs> and I just didn't quite get it. Like, why am I, why, why am I eating this stale bread and, and this wine, this, this grape juice? Um, the pastor was saying, well, Chris, that's... That's the body and the blood of Christ. What, why are we eating it then? Um, I, 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 just, I just didn't quite get it. And it wasn't just church either. My mum would go to youth groups. She would go to prayer meetings. Uh, church played a really big part in her life. Uh, it doesn't now so much, and it didn't used to either. 
Uh, and I guess to kind of try and understand why it did, you would have to delve a little bit into her past. Now, a lot of people get, from my experience, a lot of people get their religion from their parents. Um, but that wasn't the case with my mum. My grandma was not very religious. Um, she was raised in a Catholic household, but the only thing that seemed to have stuck was to not use contraception. Because uh, she wound up with about five kids before she was 21. Um, Jesus, exactly. Yeah. Um, and she had my mum at 19. Now, my mum was born with displaced hips. So what that meant was from, as from a baby, she had to be put in what they call a frog cast. And it's called a frog cast because you kind of look like a frog. Um, and so what that meant is she would eventually have to have surgery. So she was kind of in and out of hospital uh, for about the first four years of her life, which meant she's never really spent a lot of time with her mum or with her dad, which, to be honest, was probably a good thing because... Um, my granddad, to, I don't really know the proper word for this, is kind of a piece of shit, I guess. Um, he used to always brag about, like, oh, I was the first person in New Zealand to be convicted of selling marijuana. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> nice. No. I, like, I remember I met him once and he's like really old and decrepit and like no teeth. And he's like, now you know where you get your looks from. And I'm like, oh God, this is what I've got coming for me. Um, so I floss every day, and so should you. Um, but that wasn't his only conviction. So in between um, the birth of my mum and then my next aunt, he was actually convicted of raping a 16-year-old girl uh, in the backseat of his car. Now, my mum grew up in Waiheke, which is a pretty small community, uh, so everyone kind of knew everyone. And one of the horrible things about this is that they, they made an article in the paper for this um, for this conviction. And the headline at the time, um, which paints a pretty horrible picture about how New Zealand treats women, was love in the boot en route, um, which is kind of great. Um, it's not great. Um, but he was never really around, so my mum didn't really get to meet him, which I think is good for her. She did meet him once at a party in her mid-teens. He kind of rolled up to her drunk and was like, you know, I never loved you kids. Just wanted to, you know, fuck your mum in the back of the car or something like that. So so he was a great guy. Um, regardless, my mum got, eventually got out of hospital when she was about five. And she went and lives on Waiheke with my, with my nana. Now, my nana lacks what you would call um, a maternal instinct, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, so obviously with five kids under 21, um, she was clearly was not coping with life um, and tried to kill herself. Uh, she didn't tell, obviously she didn't tell anyone about this and so she's trying to look after five kids um, and decided to take a bunch of sleeping pills and a bunch of vodka to try and kill herself. She didn't succeed, she passed out for three days, but for those three days she had left five kids under the age of five um, trying to, you know, survive for themselves. Um, and so she kind of woke up with like piss and shit and nappies and food everywhere um but very much still alive um so yeah so after that my mum kind of grew up in Waiheke and it was great yeah she loved it like well <laughs> relatively loved it like it's you know you kind of run you jump around you have horses all of that stuff it's it's really fun but um they never really had I guess a caregiver to look after them because my grandma was always off drinking or with other guys um they did my mum's granddad was around for a bit. He then died, um, but then they then had... Um, his friend looked after them quite a lot, and he was a nice, weird old guy. He would, you know, say odd things. He would come around and give them all cigarettes, uh, give them all... Ten-year-old kids, yeah, that's normal, um, and biscuits and things like that. And then they would go and they would stay at his house as well because his house was nice and warm, and he had actual food, unlike the raw potatoes that they were being forced to eat at home. And stuff. So um, he seemed nice, but at the same time, he was also sexually abusing my mum as well. But like she said to me, the alternative was like a cold home with no food, which is probably just like the saddest thing I think I've ever heard in my life. Um, but yeah, so she she like developed she developed a prayer to help her deal with this. So every night before she would go to sleep, she'd be like, "Dear Lord, please protect my um, my friends and family in heaven, and please protect my friends and family on earth, and please protect you and me." And please make him die. Um, and so she would say this every night. Um, it was actually pretty funny. It kind of got quite OCD in nature. Because she would also have to do that. I don't, what do you call that thing? I don't know what you call it. 
Yeah, so she would, ha- she would have to do that. And then when in her more promiscuous years, in her teens, um, she couldn't go to bed until she had done it. So if she was like at some guy's house, she'd have to try and sneak it in like, oh, what's it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's great. Um, she then, um, my mum then moved out of home uh, when she was, I think I keep pushing this down, uh, when she was 14 because she was sick of high school and decided to go and live by herself on Waiheke, which is a great idea. Um, so like any 14-year-old with not a lot of time to do, you just drink a lot and you party a lot, especially on Waiheke because that's all you do. Um, and like I said, once again, she loved it. She had her own horses like in her yard once they brought them into the house because that seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, she, she remembers one time, uh, a, a normal Waiheke evening, um, of drinking, they, they, her friends, her, her friends thought it would be a good idea to go to the local farmers um, and steal some sheep. It's like, but, all right, that sounds good. But they, they were hunters, so what they meant was, let's go find some sheep, let's go kill some sheep, and let's bring them back and eventually eat some sheep. And so my mum thought that was a good idea at the time. Like, yeah, that, that sounds good. And it wasn't until the ride home where she realised that her seat was in the back seat of the Range Rover, which was also going to house all of the sheep carcasses. So she found herself like, amongst all of, these, all of these dead sheep, which is great. And then you know, you know when you start to get that slightly drunk paranoia creeping in? Like, oh, and things start to seem a bit odd. So my mum then thought that some of these sheep were still alive. So she thought she was in the back with these sheep that were still alive. And she brought these concerns up uh, with one of her friends. And he's like, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. And he pulls out a big knife and slits the sheep's throat, like right in front of her, like spraying blood everywhere, which is nice. Um, and that continued on for a long time. Well, not just the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the sheep thing, the Waiheke thing. Um, that continued on for a while um, until she was 17. She eventually had to leave Waiheke because she got kicked off for stealing. I didn't know you could get kicked off Waiheke. LAUGHTER <laughs> I think it's just like the guy at the boat's like, yeah, now nah, you gotta, you got to get on this boat and you can't come back. Um, but regardless, she got kicked off Waiheke, uh, ended up back in South Auckland, where she then spent a lot of her time kind of hanging out with police officers, uh, going up to the, bar- the barracks. This sounds like a good story, you know, smoking weed from the, locker ca- from the evidence cabinet and, and doing all the fun stuff with police officers. And after one such escapade, uh, she got pregnant uh, with my older sister, um, and while it wasn't necessarily an ideal situation, being 17, um, pregnant with a police officer who was married who didn't really want to admit that it was his, she wasn't really that upset about it. And I think the reason, well, the reason for that was that when she first uh, held my sister in her hands, her in her arms, she thought for the first time that, wow, this, is, this little thing is mine, this little thing loves me, it has to love me, huh? Um, and she had never really had that before from her family. Um, So, like I said, while it wasn't ideal, she was not really upset about it. Um, Anyway, her life kind of continued on a similar trajectory until the year 1985, uh, where things then changed quite dramatically. Um, And that was the year that I was born. Um, So, when my mum was pregnant with me, she met a really nice guy, um, really lovely guy, and she, not my dad, some other guy. Um, (laughs) My dad was just some guy at a party that she slept with. Um... (laughs) Um, so she, she met this really nice guy and it was all going well and then, I don't know, my mum's quite impulsive so after I was born they had a fight and my mum's like, oh, I don't want any of this anymore and she went to the bank and got all of her money out and decided to go to Australia because she was just sick of New Zealand, too much shit had happened here and her sister was living in Australia and said, you know, this is the place to go, this is, this is where all of the cool things are. So she went to Adelaide. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean for that to come across like that. Adelaide's a lovely place. Um, lots of wine country, lots of good wine, which spoke to my mum very well. Um, so my mum, she flew over to Adelaide, landed, and the best way to christen a new place, obviously, is to get drunk. Um, so she... <laughs> at least that's what I do. That's not, that's not normal. Um, so she, she dropped me and my sister off somewhere she assumed was a babysitter, uh, went and got really drunk um, and then woke up the next day with a really bad hangover at my auntie's house. And she kind of like stumbled into the kitchen and my auntie's really hungover as well. And my auntie's like, 
oh, this isn't supposed to be happening to me anymore now that I've found God. My mom's like, found God? Where was he hiding? Um, but my mom wasn't too, I guess, surprised by this. My mom had, as, as a teenager, had conducted a lot of things like seances and used a Ouija board to quite startling effectiveness. So she was, she was, <laughs> so she was kind of inclined to believe uh, my auntie when she said that some sort of greater being had come and entered her life and, and changed it all. Um, my auntie then kind of went on, proceeded to talk about her conversion story, how she had gone to church, um, heard a really powerful sermon. Um, the pastor then prayed with her, and then bam, the, the dirt of her shitty life was gone, um, replaced by the grace of God. Um, my mom started to get quite um, pale after hearing the story and started to shake a lot. Uh, my auntie freaked out a lot because the shaking started to get, you know, quite seizure-like. Um, so she called the, the pastor because she thought... Um, my mum was being possessed by the Holy Spirit after hearing this conversion story. Um, I think it was a hangover, but <laughs> irrespective, um, the pastor then came over um, and led my mum in prayer. And then when he said to her, he was like, do you want to surrender your life to God? Um, she just thought of everything that had kind of happened to her and she thought, why not, I guess? Like, what do I have to lose? Um, so my mum became Christian that night. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to make the argument that that changed her life dramatically. Like, she still did fall off the wagon um, a lot. I can remember once I had, like, friends over in my teens and she kind of, like, stumbled home drunk, like, covered in blood. And I was like, that's normal. Um, and she's like, no, don't worry. It's not my blood. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, I'm not sure if that makes me feel much better. Um, but, what, but what had happened is that she had gone out um, at tour bar and there was a big bar fight and some guy had been thrown through a window with like a big piece of glass in his neck and my mum when she's drunk she just like lo loves to get involved she's like went in there she like broke it up and like pulled the glass out of this guy's neck and like put the pressure on until like the doctor got there um, after which she came home sobered up had a shower and then was off to church the next morning um, I guess I can kind of understand why my mum needed religion. I think more than anything at that stage in her life, it was like a set of rules. It gave her boundaries that she didn't have. You know, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. Um, and not just that, though. It kind of gave her a community, something she'd never really had before. And this guy up there who loves you unconditionally, which is something that this concept that was entirely foreign to her. Um, but more than that, I don't know, I think it kind of gave her a way out. Like, everything that had happened to her None of that mattered anymore. You could put that on some higher power. You could just put that somewhere else and not even think about it uh, and continue on living. Um, prayer for her maybe so much wasn't about necessarily trying to have some sort of connection with God, but was more a symptom of hopelessness, um, of the situation she found herself in. So when something bad in her life happens, she can just park it and you can continue on living and you don't have to worry about it. Or maybe it was just the year that I was born... Maybe it's all just happens to coincide with me because I'm really cool. Um, irrespective, of, I, don't, I don't actually think the reasons why she has religion is that important. I think the fact that it happened is what's really important. And like, it's just really interesting to see the, the effect that a single event can have on someone's life um, to completely change, I guess, that negative, that negative spiral that seemingly happens a lot. Um, I went to Japan a couple of years ago. And I went and stayed in a, in a Buddhist monastery um, because I wanted to find Zen. And he was over there. Um, and no, I, I just, I had my reasons. Um, irrespective, I was, talking to, I was talking to one of the monks there and he was telling me a lot about Buddhism and about a lot of the symbols of Buddhism. And one of the symbols of Buddhism is the lotus flower. And he was telling me that this is a very important symbol for them because if you look at the lotus flower, it often grows, well, it grows in swamps and bogs. It grows in the mud. Um, really kind of horrible environments and then it raises to the top of the water and becomes like a beautiful flower and so what he told me is that what this means is that even when you find yourself um, in horrible situations either mentally or psychologically or physically it doesn't mean that you can't live your life beautifully um, so to me my mum is a lotus flower um, and when I told her this she replied very pragmatically she's like oh so even though my life was shit I still turned out all right Oh, I guess that's better than being a rose. They're just superficial and surrounded by pricks, so. 
And that's it. Chris Thompson. Our next speaker tonight is Al Hunt. Ladies and gentlemen, Al Hunt. Hello, Al. Oh, you all right? Oh, did we unplug it? No, it's just we good? The, um, Are we good? Hi. Hey. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I know, it's fun, isn't it? Yeah. How are you awesome. doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm great. So, L, you are the uh, the uh, essentially the, the the major content producer of the water <laughs> of the sorry the watercolor. <laughs> <laughs> That's the show that we do. Uh. That's what you do. That's why you're here for the wireless. I am a me. producer. You're a producer. I am wireless. a producer. And so, how did you get involved with the wireless? Um, there was a job going, and I went for it and got it. Cool. Um, so, you, have you been there since the since the beginning of the mm. of the of the of the site? Yes. Yeah. Does yeah. everybody does everybody know what the wireless is? Yeah. It's yeah. Most people. Some yeah. You, you guys should have, have some. Definitely some, some being paid by us. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's why you're here. Just for the, for the, for, the, for those of for those of us who don't know what it is, just give it to us. And we'll um, it was devised as Radio New Zealand's great white hope into the future, really, and drawing in young people and the youth and whatnot. Yes. Yes. It's working out great. Youth. Thank youth you, New Zealand's on air. And uh, yeah, and 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 how's it going? Great. Yeah, it now <laughs> are you Sorry, uh, I'll throw the ball back. <laughs> what what do you what do you what what's the uh uh where do you go from here as a as a as a as a producer in the wireless? I mean the the work is is like pretty stunning the the, the writing and the and the I do very little of it. But but No, 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 no. no. That's, that's a good thing. That's a, a good reflection for the taxpayers out there getting their value. Exactly. <laughs> and and where are you going with with the wireless? Where are you guys taking it? Um, our funding from New Zealand on air just got renewed for our second year. We actually cool. launched a year ago today. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you. What a labor of love. Um, so the New Zealand on air funding has been conditional on going to audio and video, so we're going to become a lot more multimedia in the future. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Yeah. So uh, anybody, anybody who uh, wants to, to, to make audio or video content. Or you can write it and read it aloud and that gets you around. Hey, there you go. <laughs> Get in touch. There's, yes. There's taxpayers During work hours, them. Monday to Friday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, Al Hunt. <laughs> Thank you, Oliver. Um, I'm going to have notes today. Um, the biggest difference between me and my Twitter personality is my English accent, uh, which sets me apart as someone who's not from here. Um, it's actually quite remarkable that it's as strong as it is, given that I left my hometown in Weymouth, Dorset, on the south coast of England in early 2000 and have lived here since 2004. That's what I tell people when they ask um, how long I've lived in New Zealand. And as I see their sort of thought processes skip a beat and the dates not quite check out, I try to push the conversation on. Um, because there's nothing quite like telling new acquaintances that you spent a portion of your childhood sailing around the world on a boat um, to teach you about the predictability of human nature. First question, were there any storms? <laughs> Second question, were there any pirates? Third question, Presumably out of disappointment with my negative responses to the first two and just to make absolutely sure. Were you scared? <laughs> just to put to rest their preconceptions that I spent ages 9 through 12 in varying degrees of terror, I um, sort of tried to paint a picture of sort of middle-class eccentrics, usually by quoting part of the Wild Thornberry's opening sequence. Because <laughs> um, as, as alternative as my upbringing may seem, um, the truth was it was as just an accepted fact that in early 2000, my parents would sell our house and most of our belongings, move us onto the family yacht, and we'd sail around the world. The plan had actually been in motion before either my sister or I had been born. Um, my dad started saving for it when he was in his teens. And um, by the, yeah, the tricky part was finding someone game enough to go along with it. Um, by the time he met my mum, they both had a failed marriage under their belts. So there was no time to waste in showing their plans for the future. I want to sail around the world, Dad said to Mum on one of their first dates. <laughs> I want kids, Mum said. <laughs> and so the family folklore goes, Dad, <laughs> Dad replied, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> um, it seems impossibly smooth, my dad is essentially like a, a seafaring Basil Fawlty. 
Um, but that's the way kind of family stories are, aren't they? They sort of get handed down and become more pithy and quotable. I remember like barely being seven years old and telling everyone who would listen that we were going to be moving onto the boat and sailing around the world in the millennium. And you just kind of <laughs> accept what your parents tell you at that age. Plus we were very prepared. Um, my sister and I got our sea legs before we could walk. Um, my mum's a teacher and every school holidays we'd spend the sort of um, go cruising around the coast of France and Spain and Portugal kind of preparing for what we called the big trip. Um, and then when D-Day came around, it wasn't that big a deal. Um, I remember motoring out through the harbour and under the bridge and seeing my grandma and my school teacher and everyone who'd come to see us off from our town and being really genuinely... <laughs> what? They came to see us off. <laughs> we were like local heroes. It was real cool. <laughs> But I remember being like genuinely bemused as to why mum was crying when she'd known this whole time we were going to be going. <laughs> and um, that may also be chalked up to what an HR manager recently termed my astonishingly low levels of empathy, <laughs> which are probably a product of the boat. But anyway, um, so the first six months we spent were around the familiar territories of France and Spain and Portugal. And it didn't really feel that much different from the school holidays, um, even as we got further away from home and farther and uh, spending longer and longer stints at sea. Um, after about six months of that, we went from the Canary Islands to Barbados and the Caribbean, and that was the first of what would be two, three-week stints at sea. Um, by about day seven of 21, I just stopped getting out of bed because what was the point? Um, and by the time we arrived in port, I had this enormous knot in the back of my head that mum had to, like, cut out. Um, so we spent Christmas in Barbados, um, and then we sort of island-hopped our way across the Caribbean. Um, shortly before my 10th birthday, we went through the Panama Canal and into the South Pacific, and we spent the rest of 2001 cruising. Um, there are plenty of... <laughs> what? This is my life! <laughs> it's funny for you! <laughs> Um, so there are plenty of downsides to living on a boat. Um, it's very slow. It's very expensive. Um, sometimes you have to go to bed like holding a mixing bowl because the deck is leaking and you need to catch the drips. And the sanitation department is out of order more often than not. Like my bunk was across the way from what we would whimsically call the head. And my like primary memory of it is dad like being in there swearing and furious and like up to his elbow in what we would call the shit tank. <laughs> <laughs> it was just not a great environment to bring up kids. But, like, um, there are still pockets of the world, like huge parts of the world that you can't access or see this any other way. Um, we saw, by boat, we were able to see the Galapagos much as Darwin would have seen it. Um, we went to tiny atolls called the Tuamotus, which are sort of barely reefs and will be the first casualties of rising sea levels. And we went to... Um, these very rugged, remote islands called the Marquesas, where a German tourist was eaten by cannibals in 2011. Um, yeah, it happens. <laughs> Not to us. Um, so, mum was homeschooling my sister and me, although we all took a very relaxed approach to this, and we'd sort of put things like climbed a tree or did an hour's snorkeling down as PE, <laughs> and like do five workbook pages of maths and call that it for the week. Um, and I still can't do any simple sums. I think it's unrelated to the fact that they had the answers at the back. Anyway, um, but the real education was the trip in and of itself, um, where you went to intermediate and primary and had sort of rites of passage like pet day and um, the school dance. And you had those relationships where you'd like hold hands but not talk to each other. Like, I've learned about these all after the fact. Like, we had different experiences, like, sailing with, like, yeah, other people, and we would swim with sharks and manta rays, and we drank kava with chiefs and climb mountains. Um, in the Galapagos, a local woman made my little sister ride on this giant tortoise, which I recently found out died of internal organ failure. <laughs> um, the, yeah, the other thing was with the boat having mains electricity for only an hour a day and we didn't have a TV or internet access, my little sister and I read voraciously and very in age inappropriately, apart from the Harry Potter series, which we had shipped out book by book to ports over the world. Um, we would trade in books on book swaps and so we read things like the complete works of Brothers Grimm, everything by Dick Francis and John Grisham and Tom Wolfe, <laughs> books for English language learners, just like anything. Um, Mum would do her best to get to them before we would to black out the sex scenes with a permanent marker, but she, <laughs> <laughs> but she was very rarely fast enough. 
and probably like uncomfortably aware of the fact that most of our sex ed was coming from like John Grisham novels, <laughs> where like someone has sex in a corner office whilst they're wearing their clothes. <laughs> like she bought this book called How Babies Are Made and kept it in a paper bag until we were out, of, out at sea and had nowhere else to go. <laughs> but of course she couldn't count on us like learning about how, to, how babies are made from like playground because although there were other people like cruising alongside us, mostly they were people whose kids had left home or they hadn't had kids yet. So Jess and I got very used to hanging out with adults. And um, when we did meet kids our own age, they struck us as being very, very immature when in fact they were just acting their own age. And sort of, um, plus we didn't really make, like do anything to make them feel welcome. Um, <laughs> I remember in, like at once resentful and sort of jealous of their childlike innocence and, and like lustful life. I remember encouraging Jess to join me in reading the dictionary when they came over to play to intimidate them. <laughs> now I just do that at first dates. <laughs> um, so yeah, as you can imagine, we got pretty good at making our own fun. Um, we would write this sort of fan fiction inspired by this British series of children's books about a vet's daughter and in every story, the girl's boyfriend and her pets would conspire to bring her to a grisly end. Um, and we also invented alternate worlds and um, alter egos, and we wrote diaries of those and would laboriously cross-reference them to make sure that they matched up. So we had a lot of spare time on our hands. Um, and I don't think this like concerned mum and dad per se, but it was probably a factor they took into account in deciding to settle down. When we got to New Zealand in early 2002, the initial plan was to go all the way back round to England. Um, but... After a year based at the marina in Nelson, it sort of became apparent that J Jess and I would benefit from a formal education. And the fact <laughs> that mum and dad's, um, the company that dad had invested all his life savings in had collapsed was also a motivating factor. So much to Jess and my delight, we bought a house in Nelson and then promptly rented it out and set out on a year-long farewell tour of Australia, New Caledonia and Fiji. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh at all the bits that aren't jokes. <laughs> Those are things I did. Um, <laughs> so um, all, sudden, all of a sudden, all of the things that um, hadn't really bothered me before, like the absolute lack of privacy, the proximity to my family and the like, absence of internet or power, um, they suddenly seemed like the worst thing ever. And um, the onset of puberty probably didn't help. So I started like picking heaps of fights with Jess and every time that we'd go out to sea, I'd tell mum and dad with a deep and pain sigh of how long the trip would take by plane. Um, by the time we returned to Nelson, um, I think they w I was very glad to leave the boat behind and I think mum and dad were pleased to have some space as well. Um, and the next challenge was adjusting to school life. Um, placated with the expensive pets that we'd always wanted, Jess went straight into intermediate at the age of 11 and I started at college just before my 13th birthday. Uh, the schoolwork didn't really pose much of a problem because we were reading at a seventh form level and had sort of general knowledge about things like capital cities and dog breeds that would tide us through to at least level two. <laughs> but um, the biggest problem was social. Um, having lived in a pop culture vacuum since the millennium, I didn't know the correct angle at which to wear your ponytail or the, <laughs> fact, uh, the fact that like to have as much of your lacy singlet showing underneath your shirt as possible was cool. Um, and I struggled to find any other 13-year-olds who were interested in Randy Newman's solo work. Um, but we got there in the end, and to me, either me or my sister today, you wouldn't know that our childhood was any different from yours, apart from my crippling problems with physical intimacy and my extreme, <laughs> and my extreme knowledge of like British pop bands from the 1960s and the fact that having learned all of my um, vocabulary from reading, I routinely mispronounce words. Um, but the fact is, like, the further I get away from the boat and the more distant in my past, my boat past is, the more I can, <laughs> the more I can appreciate, the f like, appreciate it and look back on it fondly and see how it's contributed to the person I am today. And the fact that I said epiphany as epiphany <laughs> in, front of, in front of my crush at the age of 14 is <laughs> water under the bridge at this point. <laughs> Our next speaker tonight um, uh, is, is, is this young woman right here. Her name is Natasha Hoyland. Hello. Uh, hey, thank you so much for, um, uh, for, for allowing me to, to, 
to forget your name and, and, <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> sneaking it in. Uh, thank you very much. How old are you? <laughs> 17. You're 17. So at 17, uh, Natasha is the youngest speaker that we've had at the water cooler. So congratulations on that, breaking that record. Yeah. So at 17, you are a high school student, am I right? Yes, that is correct. High school student. Um, and, and as a high school student, what, uh, what subjects do you like the most? <laughs> um. No, 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 I'm joking. You don't have to answer that question. Um, uh, but you're also, you also uh, have another passion, another interest, something that you would like to do, uh, or that you are doing, in fact, w which is what? Um, Stand-up comedy. Your stand-up comedy. And how long have you been uh, doing stand-up for? Um, about a year and a half now. About a year and a half. And what kind of stand-up do you do? You just, just uh, is it improvised? Is it, is it... Uh, uh Definitely not improvised. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> um, I, I, I basically do mostly observational comedy. Observational stuff. Who are your who are your who are your guys? Who are the people you look up to? Um, mostly the New Zealand comedians because I, I just love. Them. Wonderful. Uh, any any of them in the audience tonight? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is going to be fun for you. <laughs> um, thank you for uh, thank you for gracing us with your presence, young lady. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Natasha. Uh. I just wanted to st say um, before I start that um, because this was the theme today was all in the family that um, I thought it was appropriate to dress like Susie Cato. <laughs> okay, um, well I come from a family that's basically divided in terms of culture. Um, everyone on my dad's side is NZ European and everyone on my mum's side is a mixture of things varying from Thai to Malaysian to Chinese to all of the above to more so I <laughs> so I mainly just classify them as Thai as it's so complicated otherwise or people just think I'm exaggerating um, but we visited my mum's family in Thailand quite a few times but these were all when I was younger so um, most of what I can remember is a variety of old Thai women scolding me for being a disgrace to the family um, because I could barely speak Thai or, and, and I can't write a word of it, or as my mum likes to call it, a disappointment. But um, she's always nagging me on about how I should stay true to my culture and how I should embrace it. But that's a weird thing for me as I've lived in New Zealand my entire life and have known nothing else. Um, so it's a bit hard to stay true to your culture when you have no memories of the culture itself, just like some weird experiences such as leaning against a tree and not realising it's covered in fire ants. <laughs> Only to realise all of a sudden they're all over you and your skin feels like a stovetop. <laughs> but um, every time my little family, consisting of just my mum, dad and I, travelled to Thailand, um, which we used to do annually to visit my mum's family, um, my dad and I would often stay in white people resorts while my... <laughs> <laughs> while my mum stayed with um, my grandparents and other relatives in the village. Um, and a Thai word I know quite well, as I heard it at just about every single place I went to with my dad was Falang, which means white person. <laughs> and I can remember most of the experiences I had at the resorts over the years, like falling off the free bikes they provided, um, getting food poisoning from weird foods, um, trying to befriend stray cats, that I found, um, and um, terrifying a waitress because I had a talking bear that she thought was real. <laughs> it's a weird experience because she was like almost on the verge of tears. But <laughs> going to Thailand for the Christmas holidays was always my family's um, go-to holiday of choice, as it gave us time to like get away from New Zealand life and also visit the family without it being a daunting task. Um, one of the biggest and scariest memories I have is, in, is when one year we didn't visit um, a resort that we usually did and um, the resort was one of my favourites and it was located in Phuket which is a popular um, resort and tourist destination. It was such a fantastic resort with like the best breakfast croissants in the world, um, um, a water slide, bar in the middle of the pool, all of that stuff. Um, and every family that stayed at the resort got their own like personal babysitter 
and there was a kids club um, where parents could leave their children if they wanted to go snorkeling or jet skiing or to do whatever tourist parents like doing. <laughs> um, and as a kid, I loved the kids club because something about beating a boy at a PlayStation game is very liberating and I was very good at it. <laughs> um, and I remember every single tourist kid having their hair in braids with little beads at the end because Thai old women would often offer to do braids on the side of the road from their vans. Um, <laughs> the concept wasn't as creepy as it sounds, but probably wouldn't work here in New Zealand. Um, but um, the staff were lovely, and there was this one lady that used to always print off um, Disney colouring pictures for me to colour in. Um, and her name was a, was a long Thai one that I never learned to pronounce, so she just told me that her name was Butterfly. Um, and I was gutted when my mum said that we weren't going back this year, as it meant no kids club for me or beaded braids. Even my dad was disappointed, um, as it was his favourite resort as well, uh, because he's a big fan of um, unlimited shrimp and that was a great place to get that. <laughs> my mum just didn't want to go there for some reason. She just had a bad feeling about it. She wouldn't elaborate. She just kept saying things like, I don't feel good, good about it and I just have a bad feeling. And I was used to my mum being like this so I just thought she was being silly. But um, we later found out there was a good reasoning behind her worrying and why she didn't want to go there. And this all came apparent once we arrived in Thailand. It was, um, it was 2004, somewhere around Boxing Day, the day that the massive Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami hit. Um, the tsunami disastrously affected many countries, including the west coast of Thailand, where Phuket was. And if we had have gone to that resort that we usually did, we most likely would not have survived. And that's a terrifying thing to think about. Um, I didn't really... Oh, sorry. Our lives were saved just because um, my mother had had a bad feeling. We even ended up in the New Zealand Herald as a missing family, as some of our family back at home still thought that we had gone to Phuket. And I remember my parents stressing at the counter of the hotel, trying to get in contact with people back home because, um, because they didn't know where we were. And um, I, I didn't really understand what was going on being only seven years old at the time. But I can remember thinking something along the lines of, see, I told you, we should have just gone to that resort in Phuket. If, you, if we did, you guys wouldn't be stressing out right now. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I never saw a butterfly again, and I don't know what happened to her, and that's, that's something I still think about 10 years on. But another memory I still have of Thailand are the occasional days my dad and I would, um, would go with my mum into the village to visit um, her family. And my family, my mum's family, owned, um, owned a small shop about the size of an average New Zealand house entirely made out of concrete. And every day, soldiers and monks would walk past to get their breakfast, which often consisted of rice and fish or noodle soup. And the floors were concrete, everything was concrete. There were two bedrooms, like, made of concrete, of course. And um, most of the family slept together in the lounge on mattresses surrounded by mosquito nets. And I remember one night we were all in the lounge watching a tie-dub version of a Harry Potter movie when, um, we, when we heard my dad yell, and we all looked in the direction of the yell to see that a giant king cobra had made its way into the house. And my dad, who was absolutely terrified of snakes, had hidden behind my mum, slightly pushing her towards the snake. <laughs> <laughs> Not on purpose, of course, but she still gives him shit for it. Uh, <laughs> but my uncle picked up a machete and sliced the snake into pieces before chucking it out into a bush outside. And everyone was relieved that it was gone, but they were slightly terrified as to what had just happened. But no one, however, was prepared for the next day when a whole family of King Cobra Snakes showed up <laughs> looking for revenge. <laughs> My uncle once again took a hold of the machete and that was the end of the snakes. It was like a poorly written thriller. <laughs> one thing I really do enjoy about Thailand and its culture is its food. And, and my mum, originating from the country, is a fantastic cook. Um, as a child, I didn't take any interest at all in this because I was just sick and tired of having fried rice for every single meal. 
but now I'll take it any time. But, but people love her cooking. Like every time someone would come over, they would always rave about the cooking, the pad thais, the tom yums, the green curries, the spring rolls, the curry puffs, all of that stuff. <laughs> people love her cooking. And, and as a child, I just couldn't understand that at all. Like, I attended half of my primary school life um, in a primary school in South Auckland, which was a weird experience for me as I was the only Asian kid in a school largely dominated by Pacifica kids. Kids, kids. <laughs> and um, the way I worded that makes me sound racist, but I assure you that's just exactly what it was like. I remember feeling like Leonardo at the Oscars because I was the only one left standing at a prize giving without a lolly lay. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember I remember being seven years old on the day of a school shared lunch. Everyone else had brought coconut buns, taro, chop suey, packets of chips, biscuits, lollies, etc. And my mum made me like a giant container of stir-fry to school. <laughs> it was embarrassing, and I remember being absolutely mortified having to carry this giant container. But it turned out to be a big hit. Like, everyone loved it. We didn't have plates or anything, so everyone kind of just um, <laughs> grabbed handfuls out of the container. But they loved it, and at the time, I couldn't understand why. I thought they were all insane. <laughs> But, um, but as I've grown older, I've, I've learned to appreciate um, my mum's cooking a lot more. And I've realised that if she dies, there will be an outrage because all of her self-written cookbooks are in Thai. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was the water cooler issue... 11, I think? 11? Where are we up to? Issue 11? Ladies and gentlemen, issue 11 of the water cooler. That wa Give a round of applause for Chris, Al, Dylan, and Natasha. <laughs>